Welcome to the Yard Reform Podcast. We strive to help people understand the effects of applying chemicals to their yards and attempt to change the way we landscape, garden, and live overall. Join us weekly for chats about all things organic gardening and landscaping, composting, permaculture, native planting, pollinators, and beyond. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy today's show. What's up, everyone? This is Emily, and you're listening to the Yard Reform Podcast. I have here with me today Douglas Tallamy, an entomologist at the University of Delaware, author of well-known books like Bringing Nature Home and Nature's Best Hope. He's authored 103 research publications, taught insect-related courses for 40 years. Douglas, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. You make me sound so old. <laughs> well, you know, I have to tout all of this that you've you've done because you really are, you know, you have Really am old is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you get wise, right? Um, I guess, I guess. It did take a while, but we can capitalize on that now. <laughs> a long time of hanging out with plants and insects. So you're an entomologist, which I had to Google exactly what that meant, and you study insects. I do. <laughs> I wanted to ask you what what drew you to insects, what interests you in these tiny things that uh, many people are averse to or afraid of. Yeah, well, I took a course in college. Took a course in entomology and uh, by a guy named Dr. Bugby. So if you take an entomology course from Dr. Bugby, you have to become an entomologist. <laughs> It made it really interesting. I mean, insects are really interesting. So it's just a matter of exposure. Once you learn what they're doing, which is pretty much everything, including everything we humans do. Uh, and they're also really, really convenient study organisms. So if you're, if you're interested in, in biology or ecology and you wanna do, do field experiments or even lab experiments, if you choose elephants, you know, you wait 50 years for one, one generation. <laughs> If you choose a fly, you get one generation in 30 days. So you can do a lot, a lot more with insects than you can with so many other organisms. I guess I never thought about it that way. That's perfect for the impatient <laughs> That's right. kind of person like myself. Well, it's person for the, perfect for the master student who only has two years to finish and <laughs> you got to get going. I love that. So in looking into some of your books and then a lot of what you talk about, you know, we're at this point in time, or maybe we have been for a while, where we're in, in maybe a danger zone. We're losing native plants and wildlife already. And so how did we get here? And what happens if we keep going down the wrong path? Well, it was a long road to, to get here. Um, you know, when we, as we evolved on planet Earth, we were always fighting nature. It was, you know, the predators were killing us. We never had enough to eat. So the people that were best at pushing nature back and controlling it were the ones that spread their genes the farthest. So it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's second nature to us to have a totally controlled yard. Everything's perfect and nothing's out of whack. Uh, and, 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 you know, the wildness is, is inherently scary to us. Uh, so that's where we came from. but. Um, 
there's 7.8, 7.9 billion people on the planet now. And if everybody tames nature, then taming nature is essentially killing it. That, that's okay when there's a few of us, but when we do that everywhere, then what we do is, is kill the natural ecosystems that support us. We still are products of nature. We totally depend on, on ecosystem function. And when we design landscapes, living spaces, where we play, where we work, in ways that destroy ecosystem function, then you, then you don't have any, you don't have those ecosystem services that, that uh, support us. So the, the problem is there are too many of us on this planet to play that type of a game. We now have, we need more ecosystem services than ever before because there's so many people demanding them. Um, it's, it is curious because the quality of everybody's life on the planet totally depends on how, how well local ecosystems are functioning. Yet we don't teach earth stewardship as you know second nature. Um, it, it ought to be, since we all depend on it, it ought to be something we all are responsible for. But instead we've, we've assigned it to just a few specialists, a few ecologists, a few conservation biologists, and everybody else, right? we can trash the planet and be no problem. So um, it's, it's culture, it's too many of us. Uh, it's the notion that plants are just decorations. So we can, we can beautify our landscapes by picking the prettiest plants all over the, the world. And if all plants were ecologically identical, that would be okay. It would change what our local ecosystems look like, but they'd still function just as well. But um, that's not the case. Plants differ widely in their ability to perform ecosystem functions. So we have to choose the right plants. That's what I say all the time. Plant choice matters. And whether or not you're going to have that bird breeding in your yard depends on the plants that you decide to put in your yard. Very much so. Um, it's interesting, you know, the way you, you put that. It, I think we have this tendency to just think that someone else is taking care of it, that somebody, somebody's on it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just not the case. Uh, we all do need to be taught maybe, you know, as early as, as kids about sure. the importance of these kinds of things. Well, you know, we still think that there's a lot of happy nature out there and that, you know, humans are here, nature someplace else, but it's all happy wherever it is, but it's not happy. And there's very little of it left because we are everywhere. Yeah. And so you talked about uh, plant selection and that's a big important thing that, that you bring up a lot and that we're talking about a lot here is, is native plants and the importance of native plants. Can you tell us a little bit about native plants, say if you knew nothing, and the importance of having natives over non-natives? Okay, well, let's think back to what plants do in our landscapes. They do lots of things, but one of the most important things they do is capture energy from the sun, turn it into food, and that is the food that drives all the rest of life on Earth or at least, on, well, yeah, plants, even in the ocean, but let's just talk about terrestrial earth. So the food that, that all the animals depend on is locked up in plant leaves, but most animals don't eat plants directly. They eat something that ate plants, and that something is typically insects. So insects are a critical part of this, this equation. That's, that's, you know, that's what got me interested in this. And it turns out that, um, it's not just any old insect. Caterpillars are transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of organism. So a landscape without caterpillars is a landscape where most of the energy is locked up in the plant leaves, which means all the other things running around that, that run the ecosystems that we depend on have nothing to eat. 
So we have to start designing landscapes that produced caterpillars. And the only way to do that is to focus on native plants because 90% of the caterpillars that are out there are highly specialized in what they can eat. They can only eat plants with which they've had a long evolutionary um, history with so that they can develop the adaptations necessary to get around the defenses that plants put in their leaves. Plants don't want to be eaten. They want to capture the energy from the sun and use it for their own growth and reproduction. So they load their tissues with nasty tasting chemicals that make them bitter or, or downright toxic. So if you look at the monarch butterfly, for example, how do you save the monarch butterfly? You got to put milkweeds there. That is the plant they have specialized on. Milkweeds are toxic plants, but monarchs can eat them because they've got the enzymes and the behavioral adaptations and the life history adaptations that, that minimize their exposure to um, cardiac glycosides and the sticky latex sap that's in, in milkweeds. Very few insects can actually eat milkweeds, but it works well for the monarchs because it is specialized on that. But while it's specializing on milkweeds, it didn't take any time to develop the adaptations that necessary to eat oaks or cucurbits or, or uh, tobacco or cherries, the cyanide that's in cherries, all those things. Every single plant lineage is, is protecting itself with some compound. And monarchs can only detoxify cardiac glycosides. That's what they're good at. Which means if you want to have monarchs around, you got to have milkweeds. And that is true, again, for 90% of the caterpillars that are out there. Why do we want caterpillars again? Well, let's say you want a chickadee that's going to breed in your yard. Take 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars to make one clutch of chickadees, just to get them to the point where they leave the nest. Then after they leave the nest, the parents continue to feed them caterpillars another 24 days, but they're flying all around, so nobody's been able to count that. But it takes thousands and thousands of caterpillars to make one clutch of a bird that's a third of an ounce. And that's one bird. So if you, if you want a population of chickadees, you need a lot more than that. And if you want chickadees and titmice and bluebirds and blue jays and, and all of the woodpeckers and the diversity of birds, cardinals that we, we expect to have in our landscapes, we gotta make a lot of caterpillars. It's, it's that simple. You can put a ginkgo in your yard, which is a, it's ginkgo biloba from Asia, ornamental plant, and we do plant them all over the place, makes zero caterpillars. Or you could put an oak tree in your yard that supports 557 species of caterpillars here in the mid-Atlantic states. That's why plant choice matters. All of the, almost all of the ornamental plants that we choose for our yards are from Asia, which means they're not, they're not supporting any caterpillars because they haven't been here long enough for all those adaptations I talked about to take place. It takes a long, when I say long, I'm talking about thousands and thousands of years to adapt to a new new host plant in most cases. So our burning bush and our calorie pear and our boxwood and our hostas and all those things we like to landscape with don't support anything or almost nothing, but certainly not enough to make the thousands of caterpillars necessary to have a what we call a food web in your yard. Again, you say, I don't want it in my yard. Well, if it's not in your yard, where's it going to be? Because, you know, we've got these little, little pockets of, of, uh, we call them natural areas, but they're highly invaded with escaped plants from our gardens. About 30% of, the, of the, the plant biomass in our natural areas are, are escapees from our gardens. 
So like things like porcelain berry and calorie pear and burning bush and multiflora rose and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and autumn olive and privet and barberry and Norway maple and ailanthus on and on and on. That's what our natural areas are made up of in so many places and they're not supporting anything. So that's why we need native plants. <laughs> <laughs> so these invasive species, how dangerous is, is that? Are we? It's, just, it's the same argument. You're replacing the plants that run our ecosystems with plants that don't. So the danger is, you know, that's why we're getting headlines like we've lost 3 billion birds in North America. That's a third of the North American bird population. We've got global insect decline. The UN predicts we're going to lose a million species to extinction in the next 20 years. You know, these things aren't options. We've got pollinator declines everywhere. It's because we're taking away the plants that support these things and replacing them with plants that don't, or we replace them with no plants like lawn. We've got 40 million acres of lawn in this country. That's the size of, of New England. And, you know, lawn, at least when I was growing up, at least there was white clover in there. And you had a few honeybees and bumblebees. Now, you put on fertilizer, there's a broadleaf herbicide in there and you've got nothing but grass. So it's, it's a dead zone, it's a toxic dead zone that destroys our watersheds, but it certainly doesn't support the food webs that we're talking about here. Yeah, that's definitely a common goal of ours is, is to change this status symbol, this thing of this manicured yard that everybody seems to care about. And, and I think homeowners maybe think, oh, well, it's, you know, it's a, a plant, it's nature still, it's green, I'm, I have a green space. Um, but it's just not the same. And, and getting people to change their minds or even getting this information and education to people, even on a base level, is, is really difficult. And I think it's great that you wrote your books, um, I'm assuming, for that reason, is to just get That's that right. information and, to people. And it's, it's great that you're doing these podcasts for that reason, because, you know, most people don't read books. They just, they listen or they watch. So podcasts are, are great. It's, you know, I commend you. Thank you. I think we need so many different information sources these days. People have everything at their fingertips, um, yet sometimes just don't know how to digest it or something works better. But, but it's, I mean, my, myself, before I even started to get into the Yard Reform Project, you know, I've learned so much more and I've realized how surface level my knowledge was. You know, I knew it was important, but I didn't know how important. And I definitely didn't know how to even it go about introducing natives, how to find the natives in my area. And so um, what are some simple steps that you tell homeowners to do to support these insects and pollinators, um, encourage the wildlife and biodiversity? I always start with, with um, trying to reduce the area that you have in lawn. So just, just you know, I say, let's cut, cut our lawns in half. So if we cut that 40 million acres in half, we'd have 20 million acres we could put towards conservation. And if you add up the acreage of our major national parks, all of them combined, it's still not 20 million acres. So, so if we simply reduce the area of lawn, we could create a new national park that I'm calling homegrown national park because we're going to do it at home. So people say, well, how do I do that? Plant a tree. You know, put that, oak, the oak tree is the most powerful plant you can put in your yard in terms of supporting food webs and 84% of the counties of North America. So 
you know, there's very few places you can go where oaks aren't going to be good to add to your, to your yard. Then you want to build a bed around that tree. That's where you're reducing the lawn because those caterpillars that are, that are produced by your oak tree to complete their development, they drop to the ground and they, they form a pupa underground. They've got to wiggle under the ground. So they need loose, loose dirt, not something that's compacted with a mower or stepped on, or they spin a cocoon in the leaf litter that's under the tree. And if you rake it all away, you don't have any leaf litter under the tree. So that's the easiest thing to do. I, you know, I, before the virus, I'd go all over the country giving talks and, and people say, oh, I'm going to get rid of all my lawn. Don't do that. I mean, because that's a big job. Um, and then you've got a big blank space. So just pick at it. Make it a hobby. Reduce a little bit each, each year. The other thing I say is make sure that you don't have any invasive plants on your property. So if you do have burning bush, if you do have calorie pear, if you do have barberry, these things that escape, it becomes biological pollution. Um, it's your responsibility to remove those uh, because they're, you know, they're not good. Um, then you can, re you know, then you've got a blank space. You can replace them with, with more powerful plants. So people might say, well, what are the powerful plants? go to the National Wildlife Federation website and look for native plant finder, or just put in native plant finder in Google and it'll, it'll pop up. Then put in your zip code and the ranked list of the most, the most powerful woody and herbaceous plants will pop up for your county. So we used to wonder what's gonna be the best plants. You don't have to wonder anymore. It'll tell you exactly which, which plants are gonna be the best at running the ecosystem in your yard. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited that these resources exist because before you might have had to go to the library and check out a book and then where do you even find this plant? Right. And right. now you can just, I mean, you can do it from your cell phone, right? You can yeah, look yeah. It up. And I think it's important to note that planting a tree makes a really big impact because not everybody is going to be a hobbyist gardener. Um, even though it's a really awesome hobby and everyone should do it, <laughs> but not everybody will. So, you right, know, planting right. a tree is an easy way to, um, to do a lot of things, but to, it, it's an easy way to complete this project. And I love your homegrown national park project, by the way. Um, is that, what is the website for that? So people can find that and be a part homegrown of Homegrownnationalpark.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, very cool stuff and then a very cool project to be a part of. We can all make a little slice of our yard into this massive national park where we're protecting our ecosystems. So um, maybe a little weird question, but what if you live in an urban area with little to no yard? Is there any way you can contribute? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely harder if you don't actually own any land that you can manipulate yourself. Um, there are, you can do some container gardening. I mean, you can put milkweeds in a large pot and monarchs will come and use it. You know, if you've ever been to the High Line in the middle of Manhattan, um, it's a converted uh, elevated, if you just moved here, you probably don't know about it, but uh, it, it was an elevated railroad that was abandoned for years, for decades. And somebody went up on it, looked around and, and there were a bunch of native plants growing up there. So they, they decided to make it a tourist destination. And now millions of people go to the High Line every year. It's this strip of planting along this elevated railroad that 
So not many plants up there. It's, you know, it's the middle of Manhattan. So I guess it's many plants for the middle of Manhattan, but I didn't think anything would come and use it, but monarchs are using it. There's 30 species of bees there. It, it, it's amazing what has been able to colonize the High Line, even in the middle of the city. So it doesn't take a lot of space, but if you actually, you know, if you live in an apartment, you don't own any space at all, you can still make a difference by volunteering. You can help somebody who has property, but doesn't have the time or the energy or the knowledge to, to help do the things we say, or you can volunteer for, for the local, your local park or preserve. They're all underfunded. They all, you know, land, land um, conservancies everywhere have these huge volunteer groups because they don't have the staff to manage all the land that they, they own. Uh, so um, there are many ways that even if you don't own property, you can help do those basic things. Shrink the lawn, get rid of the invasive species, put in a pollinator garden, put in the plants that our pollinators need. Um, what else do we need to do? And get rid of, did I say get rid of the invasive species? And plant those, those powerful plants. I call them keystone species. The ones, only about 5% of our native plants are making about 75% of the food. So if we don't include that 5%, um, you're not gonna have a, a successful food web. And don't worry about the Earth's, all the Earth's problems because they're too big for one person to deal with. Just worry about your little piece of the Earth that you can deal with. And if everybody did that, 85.6% of the, the U.S. east of the Mississippi is privately owned. We'd be 85% done east of the Mississippi if all private landowners did that on their private property. So, you know, there's a lot of us. So let's divide up this challenge and everybody pitch in. We can get it done. We really can. Yeah, that's, that's what's surprising, you know, when you say 85%, that they don't even really realize that and um, it brings to mind another thing that you know even if you don't necessarily have your own space just listening to podcasts and being educated so that you can share the information or maybe inspire somebody that does have a yard to plant something native instead of something ornamental from overseas um, that that can be a help as well so education is always a good idea <laughs> Right, but don't forget, you know, our native plants can be beautiful too. It's not, it's, you're not giving up a beautiful landscape. There are lots of examples of beautiful landscapes. Um, and one other important thing, there is room for compromise. Uh, we found through, through research uh, recently published in my lab that you can have up to 30% of your plant biomass non-native, as long as it's not invasive. Um, like you can have your hostas, you can even have your ginkgo, it's not going to move around as long as at least 70% of the, the plant biomass in your yard is, is native and then still have a viable food bed. You can still have breeding birds and things. It's when you exceed 30% that things collapse. And I've measured the amount of native plants in the landscapes where I live. Um, it's what is it, 82% plants from Asia. So it's way above that 30%, but um, but it's not like you can never have a, 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 you know, a gorgeous accent plant again in your life. You really can. Yeah. We just bought a house here and noticed hostas in the yard and I got excited. <laughs> because they're beautiful. And <laughs> uh -huh, there you go. Um, so, you know, it's, it's nice to hear that we don't have to rip them all up and say goodbye, but that. You know, you just at like everything balance and right, right. The right balance there. So, 
Um, lastly, just is there anything else that I, I might not be able to be knowledgeable enough to ask you that, that is important to share? Let's just talk briefly about pollinator garden because people throw around that term, but um, they think anything that's blooming that attracts insects is a good pollinator garden. But we have, we've got one species of honeybee, that's, that's a non-native bee that brought over, and that's good for our agriculture. But we have over 4,000 species of native bees that did all the pollinating in, in this country, or nearly all the pollinating before we brought the honeybee over. Uh, and most people ignore those totally. We think we need pollinators because it helps our agriculture. Um, that's not the real reason. The real reason is they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. So if we lost our pollinators, we'd lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. And that is not an option. It has nothing to do with agriculture. I don't like, I don't want to say nothing. I mean, some of our plants, yeah, apples and things like that. But People think, I don't live near a farm, therefore we don't need any pollinators. Not so. You need pollinators everywhere you need plants, which is everywhere. So where those pollinators going to live? They have to live in your yard. So we have to design landscapes that support our pollinators, which means we need continuous bloom from April to the end of October. And that's not easy to do. Uh, so it, usually people don't have enough land to do that effectively or enough sun but it's a good goal for say an entire neighborhood. Everybody works together because people have different patches of sun in different places or different amounts. Um, so, you know, like I said, monarchs need milkweeds. Okay, that's one species that needs milkweeds, but at least a third of our native bees are highly specialized on different plants. There are about uh, 13 species of bees that can only reproduce on the pollen of goldenrod. 11 more on asters, you know, 12 more on native willows, split all that up and you can, you can meet the needs of, you know, 50, 60 species of bees easily in a very small space. So that's, again, takes a little bit more knowledge, but that's becoming easier to, to um, come by. And it's another goal that you can work towards. So I'll, I'll end with that. Then. I love that though. I, um... We were just talking to Heather Holm about yes, Heather. <laughs> she's lovely, and and she yeah. calls them the bookend. I think she calls it bookend seasons, the early oh, okay. spring yeah. and the late fall. And you know, even pol people planting pollinator gardens don't really think about the fact that those are really important seasons as well. And so I love the addition here of adding on. You know, maybe you can't do it all yourself. Maybe you can get your whole neighborhood to pitch in, put a little patch of this or that here and there. So I, I think that's great. And, um, and just lastly, I'm gonna plop links in our blog and underneath the podcast, but where can people find your books and, and learn more from you? Well, <laughs> they find them on Amazon like everybody else's books. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't sell them at home or anything, but... Um, where can they learn more about me? Go to that website, homegrownnationalpark.com. We just opened it, uh, but I've moved everything from old websites over there, and it's all there. I'm going to put my yard on your map. Yes, put your yard on my map. Everybody, everybody should put their yard on the map. We want to see how it's spreading through the country. Yeah. That's a really fun resource. Well, Doug, thank you so much for doing this with me, and um, 
I look forward to future conversations, neighbor. You're welcome. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> welcome to Chaz Ford. Thank you. <laughs>